0: This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, it is Tuesday, March 30th. We have Sean Vanderwell and Sajer Joshi again. Uh, This is, I think, the third time you guys have been guests on from Drawing Capital. Um, And, you know, to start us off, I'd like to mention the fact that Drawing Capital also provides a free weekly newsletter, which can be found at drawingcapital.substack.com. Link will be in the show notes. And all opinions expressed by Sean Vanderwall and Sajir Joshi in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are solely their own opinions. This podcast is not an offer nor recommendation to buy or sell securities of any investment fund nor a solicitation of offers to buy any such securities. Investment in any strategy, including strategies described herein, involves a degree of risk, and clients uh, of drawing capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Uh, Today, we're going to really hit a couple topics, uh, mostly looking at some of the pullback in tech, but also kind of later in the conversation, we'll be talking quite a bit about SPACs. Uh, so let's let's start us off. I mean, tech stocks typically fall during, you know, periods of rising interest rates based on the discounted cash flow model. And ultimately, the higher rates go, you know, the lower the present value of the future stream of earnings. So, I mean, essentially, it's my understanding that because tech companies have rapid growth assumptions built into them, rising rates cut into investment even more. Uh, would you mind elaborating on the relationship between rising rates and tech stocks a bit? And I'd also be curious to hear your thoughts on why, especially last week, we saw a few days of declining interest rates. uh, But even then, we saw some tech shares continue to fall. Uh, Does this represent a breakdown of the relationship? And is that an anomaly?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think just to start quickly, what might be helpful for listeners, I want to just cover three common methods used to value companies. And then we can land on discounted cash flow modeling and go a little uh, more in depth there. But for the first one uh, would be price multiples, which really just compares one company to another company or another sector industry company cohort, where short term investors typically trade on price multiples, technicals and market sentiment. The second version is uh, precedent transaction analysis. So if a company was recently acquired at X price multiple than a similar company should also be trading at X price multiple. Um, These price multiples and precedent transaction analyses are comparisons to other companies or an industry sector, while discounted cash flow is based on the performance of an individual company, so relative versus standalone. Intermediate term investors may use either price multiples or. Precedent transaction analysis, particularly for being patient and hoping that mean reverting strategies are successful or that markets better value a stock or company compared to other stocks or companies. And then finally, uh, to touch on the third, we're brought to discounted cash flows or DCF. DCF is the intrinsic method of valuing a company, as mentioned in, in the name itself. You are discounting, like you said, Drew future cash flows by this discount rate, which is um, where interest rates can be applied. And when rates are rising, the discount rate on those future cash flows becomes greater and creates an environment whereby investors prefer cash generation and certainty today, like stocks that pay a dividend, as opposed to the future, like these high growth companies uh, that are showing in oftentimes tremendous revenue growth, but aren't maybe yet profitable, profitable, and they're not paying those cash flows forward to, to today. Um, and especially, you know, these companies trading at very high multiples recently that are predicated on these future cash flows. Um, you know, we've seen that materialized in last year, exponential, you know, multiple expansion, but now that kind of under unwinding um, and, and by means of multiple contraction but discounted cash flow analysis seems to be the best utilized method for long-term investors. Short-term investors and technical traders often find little use in discounted cash flows simply because if the investing time horizon is a month or less, for example, a company isn't going to turn its financials around in a month and certainly won't publicly report a turnaround until the next quarterly earnings release. So long-term investors care about the intrinsic value of the company because they intend on being long-term holders of the business and therefore care about the growth of future revenues, cash flows, et cetera. Uh, this makes sense. And if you're investing for the long-term, uh, I think it still makes the most sense to focus on fundamentals like revenue growth, margins of the business that really carries nearly 90% of the stock price returns over a 10-year period of time, whereas multiples uh, tend to have the greatest impact over a 12-month period. And and that change really starts to shift just based on previous research that we've been through at around a a three-year holding period. Now, to answer your question, Drew, more directly, uh, and the second part to your question, the 10-year U.S. Treasury sank from a 1.732% yield on March 19th to a uh, 1.614% yield on the 24th and then moved back up to a 1.65% yield at the end of last week. So this is all again just speaking relatively here. This is all after moving up from a 91 basis point or a 0.91% yield at the start of the year. So yields have almost doubled in 2021 relatively speaking. I don't think it's an anomaly. I think investor Anxiety has set in around anticipated inflation resurgence and the fear around the Fed's actions as a result. Um, You've also largely seen this materialize in sector rotation from growth to value for those cash flow reasons I mentioned.
2: And if we think about the volume that we've been seeing, it seems like there's a bit of a pullback. Last week on the New York Stock Exchange, volume was about 80% of the 30-day average, NASDAQ was similar, 90% of the average, as you said. Consumer sep- or investor sentiment might be down with the fear of inflation. We keep on hearing the new stimulus package maybe overheating the economy. Have retail investors begun to lose interest in the markets? And if the, if that's the case, what could be causing it?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that investors are losing interest exactly for a few reasons, but since mid-February, there's been a dramatic, uh, dramatic reshuffling of the deck, largely again, that sector and style rotation we discussed from growth and high growth focused companies to more value oriented companies. And I think many investors, both individual and institutional are nearing the end of the core rebalancing of portfolios. And as those target allocations are falling more in line uh, with investor sentiment and worries about inflation rising, uh, treasury yields um, volume has dropped bel- slightly below the average. As a result, eighty or ninety percent isn't a, you know necessarily a massive decline, but I think this is also a product of tripping seasonality. And if you look at data from the CBOE site, uh, they chart basically month to month seasonality uh, of volume going back ten years over the past 10 years on average trading volume increases through january and february and declines thereafter in march and april that is the average which is exactly where we are now and this is then followed by increased trading volume basically from may until december where it then plateaus for the end of the year and then last year i, I think final point here there was a lot more activity in the ipo and spac space including very high profile companies like snowflake unity software palantir airbnb and doordash just to name a few but as we all know this first quarter of 2021 by comparison has experienced
0: very little activity uh in that arena Gonna which you know mentioned how the markets have been responding to fed stances uh just this last week they Gave a lot of insight on what they're thinking in terms of cryptocurrencies, um, which is essentially, you know, from Jerome Powell, that they're in no hurry to develop a central bank digital currency. Now, is it kind of inevitable that they're going to shift on this position, especially in light of companies like Tesla are trying to accept Bitcoin? And then we also have seen central banks around the world expressing interest uh, with the Chinese arguably the furthest along. Yep. Yeah. So I think you'll start to see many organizations and
1: governments start to adopt a cryptocurrency of some kind. The interest level is certainly there in institutional adoption by banks and now consumer companies like Tesla, as you mentioned, are gaining huge amounts of momentum for an asset class driven by supply, demand, adoption. I think that Tesla adding Bitcoin as a payment is a, a major step in this trend. But I think that Bitcoin will be the
3: global
1: leader um, by a decent margin. I really, um, really has been like the crown, the currency of the digital world. And you really just need to look at the transaction volume and adoption data there. I, I don't really think there's a close second globally at this point. China has, you know, it's on the cusp of, of rolling out these cryptocurrencies, but the Fed developing its own, central bank digital currency will take time plenty of expertise and it really doesn't solve uh, the global problem that bitcoin was founded on and i think it's important to remember why bitcoin was formed to begin with people especially in developing countries and those with a distrust um, in the government and home country's financial system really deeply want something that's decentralized accessible and universal uh, the Fed adoption of cryptocurrency which is you know not gonna be Bitcoin I, it's already been stated because of its volatility um, that won't happen but um, will be continued to use by consumers and in a suit in a consumer-led economy companies will follow suit as Tesla's doing now um, there are also a lot of people worried about the monetary debasement of the dollar here And as the backbone currency of the world economy, I think the sheer quantity of dollars being printed in the last year is deeply worrying for a lot of people. And and as a result, those people are using Bitcoin uh, as just a widely adopted hedge against this monetary debasement and and are willing to accept the volatility um, and, and upside prospects as well because of the long term concerns about the consequences of the policies in place today. Um, to touch on China, I think they're a very unique and prominent player in the Bitcoin market that I don't think we hear enough about, honestly. First of all, it's home to the majority of the Bitcoin mining operations in the world where four major miners there control something like half of the supply of Bitcoin. Secondly, there's also a, uh, they're home to a major uh, and major, plural, Bitcoin exchanges like Binance, for example, which has enticed a large number of investors due to lower transaction fees. Um, This is especially significant since there's a fixed amount of Bitcoin supply at 21 million, which leaves the market exposed to, I would say, currency manipulation um, by these organizations in China. And this is also curious, as you mentioned, due to the fact that China has developed their own currencies, such as the e Yuan and uh, DSEP, uh, is the abbreviation for digital currency, electronic payment. Uh, it seems now there's a massive adoption race, basically between DSEP, Yuan, Bitcoin, and other alternatives like uh, DM, uh, all looking to upend the existing financial system.
2: And they all come with really creative names. But to, to dig in a little bit further on digital currencies and, and cryptocurrencies is we have seen companies, U.S. companies like Facebook, trying to launch their own, what was originally Libra, now called Stable Corn Diem. Microsoft's president, Brad Smith, came out with a strong statement advocating that governments are best suited for this role. Really, I think Drew touched on this, but Do you think that the government or companies are going to be the first pioneers of this? And is Brad Smith right in his assumption that digital currencies really should be under the purview of governments?
1: Yeah, so just so listeners understand, a couple key points with respect to to Facebook, um, who I think is on the leading edge just from the private sector in the U.S. here. They were actually a, a founding member of Stablecoin, DM. But they don't have total control there. Uh, they do own Calibra, which is basically their version of a digital wallet. But again, I think Bitcoin exists due to the behavior and control by governments and central banks. And the point is really to have that decentralized access for everyone. I think what will have the most impact on a cryptocurrency's success are uh, adoption by key investors, for one. Bitcoin has already brought in square paypal tesla people like paul tudor jones mass mutual and, and obviously many more but the second part of that equation is distribution and application so facebook for example can help roll out a cryptocurrency like DM and immediately give access and application to people who use whatsapp facebook messenger just facebook as a whole and for reference facebook currently has about billion monthly active users with its largest presence in India, China, or excuse me, not China, US, Indonesia, Brazil, and Mexico. Um, And as mentioned earlier, I think the other most significant player is China, uh, reasons being that they control a commanding amount of Bitcoin today and are close to releasing their own uh, currencies, yuan and and indicep, as I mentioned, which immediately... Can get access to the distribution across things like WeChat, Alipay, QQ, and others. So it could definitely be argued uh, that they have uh, China has the advantage there in the crypto space. But to answer your question, I would say I very much respect Brad Smith's opinion. He's an incredibly smart guy. Um, A couple places I think our opinions might differ. I think the US and internationally. Basically, ex-China and ex-Russia, which is having its own internal struggle with crypto adoption or lack thereof, I guess, will be mostly controlled by Bitcoin as a decentralized token. And then through private entities that have a commanding distribution through social media and e-commerce platforms today, um, like Facebook, as you mentioned, Facebook Financial, also known as F2, is run by David Marcus, who's just insanely talented. He was the uh, president of PayPal and is probably, um, you know, I know Sagar follows him closely and is a big fan as, as well, but probably a top 10 person in the world for understanding digital payments. And he, if he's developing anything at Facebook, which he is as the head of F2, I expect that it'll be a commanding force uh, as well. And I don't think it's something that people should be so quick to turn a blind eye to, just given his understanding. Um, uh, of that that space in that market, but that being said, uh, should the central bank, for example, decide to roll out a stable coin uh, or other stable coins being used in the marketplace for purposes specific to Fed mandates or policy? Yeah, I, I think you know those should be in the government's purview um, and would echo Rad Smith's sentiment uh, there. Well,
0: let's uh, let's talk a little bit about specs. Um, so you know as as SPACs have been around really since the 1990s, but they've recently exploded. I was pulling this up on March 11th. There were 246 SPACs this year, which is the same amount as there were in all 2020. And if we're looking at 2019, only 59 SPACs hit the market. What is a SPAC uh, for all our listeners who might not be familiar? And, and ultimately, why are they so popular
3: right now? Great question. And thanks again for having and inviting Sean and I to this podcast. A SPAC stands for a Special Purpose Acquisition Company and serves as a vehicle in taking private, uh, or rather taking a private company public. At Drawing Capital, we have identified five key reasons for why SPACs have become popular now. First, there exists a constrained supply of high growth companies in public markets. Investors increasingly are seeking high return and growth focused strategies especially in a low interest rate environment. A second reason is that company executives increasingly are preferring faster speed to market, better valuation certainty, and less dilution as top preferences in the process of going public. Third, the success of some SPACs have legitimized the SPAC transaction process. A SPAC sponsor with deep financial market sophistication, operational and technical expertise and the ability to bring venture capital like hyperscaling abilities to companies adds value and reduces the dual principal agent problem that is sometimes seen in the traditional IPO process. The fourth reason focuses on an investor's perspective. Due to the redemption feature, a number of SPACs have a compelling risk reward trade off for investors when investing prior to a deal announcement. Also, SPACs benefited from a zero interest rate environment because in a zero, or even negative inflation-adjusted real interest rate environment, investors are increasingly allocating money into a SPAC that has a probability of appreciating in value, or at least remaining constant, compared to a bond that pays zero or even negative interest rates. A fifth reason focuses on guidance and transparency to investors. When investing in innovative technologies, it is important to focus on future returns and future progress, as opposed to the past especially since the majority of the current value of a technology company is based on its future plans and cash flows. A SPAC transaction allows a discussion on forecasts while the IPO process has restricted ability to make forward-looking predictions. These five reasons help explain the surging interest in SPACs, which we can then quantify via data from SPAC Insider. For example, the average size of a SPAC launch has increased about nine X, from 2009 to Q1 of 2021. SPAC fundraising in the first 12 weeks of 2021 exceeded the $83 billion that was fundraised by SPACs in 2020. And the total number of SPAC launches in Q1 2021 has exceeded the cumulative total of SPAC launches from 2009 through 2019. In summary, there are key benefits for multiple parties that participate in the SPAC ecosystem. Private companies benefit from the ability to go public with speed, greater certainty, and strategic partnership with a SPAC sponsor. From a SPAC sponsor's perspective, the SPAC sponsor becomes an investor in a late stage private company that it likes, and the SPAC sponsor often earns significant financial upside. Along the same token is the fact that SPAC capital fundraising and that process is easier when there's lots of popularity and interest in SPACs. From the investor, perspective, especially from a public market investor perspective in SPACs, benefits include the ability for a public market investor to actually participate in the growth of private companies when they become public sooner and beyond, and the ability to redeem shares before a deal announcement, thereby providing an interesting risk-reward opportunity.
2: Well, they have grown in popularity because you see that uh, Steph Curry has a SPAC, a bunch of other athletes with, with not too much experience, I would say, in, in investing especially because SPACs seem very sector-driven, with tech companies making up a large percentage of of those. How do the SPAC target companies who who they want to acquire, and why is it so popular in the technology sector compared to others?
3: Thanks for the good question. From a supply and demand framework, hundreds of SPAC launches have occurred over the past two years, and CB, CB Insights estimates that over 600 private companies exists with valuations north of $1 billion. And so SPACs vary in their strategy for merging with a private company to take it public. And SPAC sponsors usually source deals from three channels. So channel number one would be independent private companies seeking to go public, such as these private unicorns that exist today. The second channel would be private equity portfolio companies that are seeking an exit from the Uh, existing investment. And the third would be corporate spinoffs and carve outs. So SPACs have taken companies public across a variety of industries, including biotech, software, fintech, real estate, and more. Among many, there are two important reasons why I believe SPACs are especially popular with technology and software-enabled companies. A key benefit for SPAC transactions is the ability for a private company to provide forward-looking guidance about its future, which is especially important for high-growth technology companies and companies with innovative scale where estimated large future cash flows may arrive in the distant future as opposed to the near future. Crafting a narrative to investors and stakeholders then becomes increasingly important. A second reason is the ability for a private company to partner with a SPAC sponsor during the private to public market transition and potentially receive continued benefits of this venture capital at scale model that I mentioned earlier with hyperscaling capabilities. Notably, we feel that the quality of a SPAC sponsor is very, very important. A SPAC sponsor is, uh, I I guess from a definitional standpoint, a, a SPAC sponsor is an individual or entity that connects with a private company in order to take the private company public via a SPAC transaction. We feel that a high quality SPAC sponsor embodies really the four following traits. Trait number one is operational and technical excellence. Trait number two is financial market sophistication. Trait number three is material skin in the game via material personal investment from the SPAC sponsor. And the fourth trait is the ability to connect with other high quality sponsors and investors to source private investment in public equity. So I guess in summary, SPACs and private companies partner together over a variety of industries, As you mentioned, technology is quite popular among the SPAC ecosystem. Nonetheless, there's a wide distribution of returns when investing in SPACs, and good investors can distinguish between dubious future projections in some of these SPACs uh, that have come out recently versus exceptional high-growth companies with best-in-class products that meaningfully contribute value to both customers and shareholders. Historically, partnering with a high-quality SPAC sponsor has been mutually advantageous to three key parties: private companies, the SPAC sponsor itself, and then the SPAC shareholders.
0: It, it's interesting that you bring up material uh, skin in the game as one of the factors because I think that's something you can see across mutual funds too. Um, wherever management's got you know its own money, it's usually a good sign about performance. Um, you know, it's it's tough to trust a guy who's who's selling something and then and then isn't in it, but. Um, Another thing that I I guess, you know, makes me think of is that SPACs have been seeming to justify these higher valuations than IPOs, and it makes me curious about what the future is for firms like Renaissance Capital, you know, who are most notably known for their Renaissance IPO ETF. Uh, So, I mean, what could some risks associated with SPACs be, Uh, and in what circumstance might a traditional IPO be preferable? Or, or are we going to see, you know, traditional IPOs go the way that the dinosaur?
3: Great questions with lots of nuance. Despite the rising popularity of SPACs, several key risks remain like you've uh, asked. And I'll quickly summarize five risks among many uh, in SPACs. So I guess risk number one is that a successful SPAC transaction is highly dependent on both the quality of the private company going public and the quality of the SPAC sponsor. So said differently, a lack of quality in either or both of these parties can possibly lead to suboptimal outcomes or investment losses. The second risk is that a typical $10 per share redemption feature goes away after the completion of taking the private company public, thereby adding downside risk to an investment. And that's really associated with the nuances with the redemption feature that is available in SPACs, but not available in an IPO. The third risk is that in the event that a SPAC sponsor does not find a target private company to merge with within two years, the SPAC shareholder may receive a trivial return if the SPAC shares were purchased near the SPAC launch issuing price, which is typically near $10 per share, or may actually receive a loss if SPAC shares were purchased above the SPAC launch issuing price, which, like I mentioned, is about $10 per share. The fourth risk in SPACs is that the validity of some of these future forecasted projections in, SPAC, in some SPAC presentations seem questionable. Um So you really have to do your due diligence to figure out what's really worth it in the long term and, and and what just seems very, uh, let's call it, modest, modestly optimistic there. And the fifth risk uh, that I'd like to highlight is that given both the significant volume of SPAC launches and the dollars fundraised in SPACs, Many SPAC sponsors are chasing the same set of private companies, thereby driving up late-stage private company valuations. And then multiple SPAC sponsors are increasingly competing against each other to take a specific private company to the public equity markets, which highlights your questions about the valuations of some of these SPACs. And I guess moving forward to your next question, IPOs, uh, in my view, are not facing extinction in the near future. An IPO, SPAC, reverse merger, and direct listing are the four main methods of a company going public. The key benefit of an IPO is the ability for a company to fundraise for primary capital and often in large quantum of capital might I add as well. With the IPO process, the company has the ability to market IPO shares to investors and the company can direct shares to specific buy side investors that hopefully align with the company's long-term values and value creation process. Nonetheless, the rising SPAC trend provides an alternative to the traditional IPO route And when competition in the going public process exists, then private companies presumably can make their preferred going public decision based on their individual needs and priorities, as opposed to a quote unquote, one product fits all approach. So I guess all in all, how a private company seeks to go public is based on its priorities and key stakeholders. Importantly, widening the aperture and diversity in the range of companies going public provides greater investor access especially for individual retail investors in investing in more high growth companies as they become public, which thereby allows more optionality of financial and economic empowerment for individuals via access to high returns.
0: Well, thanks for that, Sajir. And I guess I'd kind of like to kind of close out our set of questions with, you know, is there anything you can think off the top of your head that, um, you know you're, you're excited about whether you know it's your drawing capital research or anything else that we might not have touched on today
3: yeah, i think it's a great question we've uh we're certainly excited uh about so so many things going on in the world uh at drawing capital we're very focused on what we consider the innovation economy we're really focusing on a set of technologies and companies that are advancing humanity forward uh, by doing really great work in a variety of industries where whereby that may be in software and medical devices and biotech, et cetera. Uh, first and foremost, I wish you and all of our listeners uh, good health, uh, especially with this ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Uh, it seems like vaccines are, are rolling out uh, millions at a time across states, uh, but nonetheless, uh, we've also heard that this distribution process has been scattered and and suboptimal, so really hope that uh, this vaccine uh, process can can get through over the next uh, few months or so and hopefully we can have some sense of uh, normality I know uh, uh, Sean and Jugal our third co-founder and i are are really excited about actually getting back together for, uh, for in-person meetings and hope uh, you too uh, as well so just looking forward to uh, just getting back to some level of normalcy but at the same time accepting that the new world and, and the new realities that come up uh, come of it um and uh, approaching this from a positive landscape going forward
0: all right well thanks for your time gentlemen um we'll be posting this for all our listeners um i'll add a couple of the things on the you know the show notes uh most notably the newsletter, and maybe a couple of the sources we've used um, to kind of frame our conversation today. Uh, thanks again, gentlemen, and uh, we'll be talking to you later. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host, and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Wellfest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by Wellfest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthVest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness or completeness of the content. WealthVest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.